You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Welcome to Clinical Pearls. I'm your host, Curry Bordelon. Our guest today is Dr. Amy Holland. Dr. Holland is an Associate Professor and the Assistant Dean of Graduate Clinical Education at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Nursing. She is also the Chair for the National Association of Nurse Practitioners in Women's Health. Welcome, Dr. Holland. Thank you for having me, Curry. So before we get started with our topics, the very important topics that we have today uh, related to women's health, can we talk a little bit more about what is a women's health nurse practitioner and how does that differ from a midwife or an OB type uh, role? Absolutely. So a women's health nurse practitioner has received the education to take care of women from the time of their first menstruation until postmenopause. We provide obstetrical care, but we don't deliver babies. We don't do surgery. We provide gynecological care. We also provide primary care. So what are some of the most important uh, concerns for women, women's health today? Some of the most important concerns for women's health today is prevention, prevention, prevention. I would say if, if I have one mantra, it's prevent, uh, because you can. And with women's health, so many illnesses and diseases can uh, be prevented. And also, if you catch them early, there's an excellent prognosis with the treatment and the research that's taken place. Can we talk a little bit more about prevention? Because that's clearly important and in, in sustainable women's health. Let's talk about some of the preventative measures that can be taken. Absolutely. I am a big, big fan of an annual well woman examination. And notice I said well woman. Um, you want to prevent. So to keep you healthy and well, an annual well woman exam allows the woman to go in, see her health care provider, and be screened from head to toe for whatever is applicable to her age. Excellent. So what are some of the typical screening tools, typical tests that might be run, or questions that can be asked during that uh, preventative care event? Absolutely. So one question that I hear often as a women's health nurse practitioner is, what do I need to do today? What do I need to have screened? Do I need to have any blood work? Do I need to have a pap test? Do I need to schedule a mammogram? When do I start certain tests and screenings? So you mentioned every year, once a year is the mm -hmm. optimal time. Is there, other, is there any other situations that may need to occur sooner for preventative type measures? Absolutely. Anytime a woman notices anything different or of concern, I encourage patients and clients to reach out to the healthcare provider to be screened. Early is always better. Can you talk about some examples of so uh, out of the out of the ordinary instead of the annual visit, but those concerns that might uh, interest a visit to a primary care provider. Sure, so anytime the menstrual cycle changes, if it is shorter, if it's longer, if it's heavier, if there's anything that changes specifically of concern that you notice is different, I would say reach out. Any type of pelvic pain or pain that radiates to the back, reach out. If you notice any changes in your breast tissue, reach out. If you notice any changes to your skin, changes in bowel or bladder functioning, changes with discomfort during sex, anything that's different or changes warrants an evaluation. Excellent. Do we ha do, is there an opportunity during your annual visit or even during the intermediate visits to have a discussion about mental health? 
Absolutely, absolutely. Where I practice the UAB Student Health and Wellness Center, we screen all patients for mental health. That is a standard practice. If you come to us today, we screen. If you come to us within the year, we screen or we offer to have that screening done again. So yeah, and not all providers do that, uh, but always feel comfortable asking about mental health because that is so important to your wellness. Can you talk a little bit more about some examples during the mental health screening element of the preventative care? What are some types of things that you're looking for? So our number one diagnosis is depression and anxiety. So we are always screening for those two because those two, if left untreated, can lead to other mental health disorders and also physical disorders. What are some of the most common things that you're seeing beyond the population? You, you mentioned we're going to get back to that about the Student Health and Wellness Center we have here. But in general, in women's health, what are some of the most common uh, concerns that you're seeing? Most common concerns relate to vaginal infections, vaginal discharge, vaginal odor, menstrual cycle disorders, contraception, prevention of pregnancy. Uh, sometimes I see other things such as uh, infertility, thyroid disorders, diabetes, chest pain, um, but specifically gynecologically focused, uh, it deals with vaginal health. Excellent. So what are the types of services you mentioned earlier uh, about student health and wellness? What types of services? Is it just preventative care that is offered here on campus uh, for the student health and wellness? Or what, el what other services are provided for our uh, women's student population? Yeah, so here at UAB in the student health and wellness, we provide primary care. <clears throat> we also provide specialty care. We even provide procedures, uh, x-rays. We have blood work, vaccinations, if there's any type of sports medicine or uh, needs, we provide that in addition to dietetic services, counseling services, uh, addiction services. One thing that's very different and unique about our center for women specifically is we provide care to women regarding procedures, but we also provide care to transgender patients and we, we provide hormone therapy, which I'm not familiar with many student health centers that do that. That's pretty uh, cutting edge as far as what's available for students Absolutely. Uh, in our very unique per, uh, population. Absolutely. Can we talk a little bit, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, about some of the common um, elements that are part of the wellness exam, mm -hmm. uh, such as screenings and, and uh, testing and so forth. Can we take a little time and talk about each of those elements, such as, for instance, pap smears? Or pap test. Yeah, yeah, good job. So years ago we called it the pap smear because you would smear cells on a slide. But now it's called the pap test. So good job, proud of you. Because you collect cells and you mix them up in a little container and you send them off. So the pap test has been very controversial for years. And let me just go ahead and, and tell you, next year you're going to see some changes to how we manage and uh, when, when we do screen. Uh, so it's about to change again. But with pap tests, they should not be started before the age of 21. That's what the standard guidelines across the board say. And then once you are 29, when you start screening for HPV, uh, that changes up a little bit as well. But yeah, pap tests should not be done every year. Pap tests should be done based on the guidelines. And like I said, healthcare providers know those guidelines, ask questions about the guidelines. But one thing I see in the, in the clinic is 
Patients want a pap test every year. You don't need a pap test every year. And even the, the research behind it shows it can be detrimental to have a pap smear every year. So, very good question. Can we talk more, let's talk about mammograms then. Absolutely. Mammograms are very important. Breast health in general is important for a woman to be familiar with her breast tissue. What is normal for you around your menstrual cycle? What is normal after your menstrual cycle? We call this breast self-awareness. So I encourage women in the shower when their hands are soapy, lift the arm and feel of the breast tissue up and down like you're in a garden, up and down in rows. And feel, if you feel anything that feels like a marble or pearl, hard, round and smooth, that is something of concern. If you feel something that's just kind of, just kind of something there, not so much to worry, but if it feels like a marble, hard, round, and smooth, then that is something of concern. You should seek help, help for that. So how do you convince women who may have, during a self-assessment, mm -hmm. have noticed something abnormal, mm -hmm. but are terrified because of a relative that has died from uh, breast cancer or so forth, how do you convince them to seek help? Curry, that is the magic question. Because so many patients that I've seen throughout the years, I've taken care of women uh, across the lifespan. And even in the population I care for now, they fear. They say, you know, what if it goes away? Or what if it doesn't go away? Well, if I ignore it, maybe it'll go away. So I take that time during the Well Woman exam to teach patients what you're hopefully not looking for. But if you find it, seek care immediately because it, it can be you know easily corrected uh, with the treatments that are available. So I do see that, but I try to help patients realize the importance and the urgency of seeking help if they find anything of concern, like something like a marble or pearl, nipple discharge, bleeding from the nipple, or any type of skin rash that might form as well. Those are other things to be concerned about. So let's talk a little bit about uh, women who are now interested in beginning families, wherein mm -hmm. they talk about reproductive health. Mm -hmm. What type of um, conversations do you have? What type of testings and preparation for and so forth do you have in, the, uh, in a uh, clinic or office visit? Yeah, reproductive life planning is a very important topic that I address with all of uh, the patients. When do you want to start a family? Do you want to start a family? And oftentimes, the patients that I see know when they want to start a family. And most of the time, most of them don't want to start a family when they're in college, uh, when they're in graduate school. For those women who are not ready to begin a family, can we talk a little bit about contraception? Absolutely. A contraceptive consult is a very important conversation to have with your healthcare provider. Currently, the Center for Disease Control recommends long-acting reversible contraceptives, LARCs, uh, as the first contraceptives that the healthcare provider should discuss with the patient because they're the most effective, 99.9% .9 effective. And that includes the intrauterine device, which we call the IUD, and it also includes the contraceptive rod. Now, there are a few IUD options in America. There are progesterone only and there are copper. There are progesterone only that can achieve amenorrhea, which is a fancy term uh, for stopping the period. There are also ones uh, that, like I said, the copper IUD, which is no hormone whatsoever, which is a great option for women who do not want any type of hormone. Now, 
how would you help a patient decide between a progesterone only and a copper IUD? You get to the heart of what's important to the woman. When do you want to have a baby? When do you uh, think it's the right time for you? Because the contraceptive IUDs are easily reversible. All right, so you pull it out and the woman could ovulate. You should continue to ovulate with an IUD. So you have IUDs, like I said, that can achieve amenorrhea, stop the period. Then you have ones that you still have a period, it just lightens the period. You have the progesterone only that are good for three years. You have one that's good for five years. So timing is important, but also what's important to the woman with the hormones. With the copper IUD, it's good for 10 years. Now, any of these can be removed at any time, and the contraception, like I said, is easily reversible. So the woman would be able to try to get pregnant and could potentially easily get pregnant if she ovulated during the time when it was removed. That's much different than some of the other methods. All right, so remember I said the contraceptive rod. It goes in the non-dominant arm right along in here, okay? You can feel it, it feels like a little matchstick, it feels like a little plastic matchstick, if you will, okay? And it is inserted, it's good for three years, it's progesterone only, easily reversible, just like the IUD, 99.9% .9 effective, great methods. Then you have your depot shot, and you have your com combined estrogen and progesterone hormones, such as the peel, the patch, and the ring. Now, the shot is a great option, uh, specifically for athletes and for women who don't want to deal with a menstrual cycle. Majority of patients who have the depot shot do not have a period, the inner amenorrhea. It's good for three months, but there's a lot of breakthrough bleeding associated initially for most patients with it. The other thing with the, with the shot is that uh, there might be a risk for increased appetite. Now, most patients have heard it makes you gain weight, but it's not necessarily that it makes you gain weight, it increases your appetite. Because a high dose of progesterone <clears throat> increases your appetite. So I tell patients about that, let them weigh. I tell them it's important if you stay active, drink a lot of water, don't skip meals. I don't necessarily see the weight gain. The other thing with the other options <clears throat> include the pill, the patch, and the ring. So those are combined estrogen and progesterone methods. Can you remember to take a pill every day? Most patients can't. With the ring, it's inserted by the patient into the vagina and it's left 21 to 28 days. Then it's removed. Can you remember to do that? Then the patch is like a Band-Aid, it's a square. It can go here, 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 or here. Put it on for one week, take it off, put on another one, same place, leave it for a week, take it off. Third week, put one on, leave it for a week. The fourth week, you do not have any patch applied and you have a menstrual cycle withdrawal bleed during that time. So if you can't use estrogen, then those methods would not be good for you. But if you have really heavy, painful periods, if you have um, the ability to remember to do something, those are your best methods for you. They're not as easily reversed. We talked about IUDs and rods. Now they're long-acting reversible. So with the pill, the patch, the ring, and the depot, it can take a few weeks to a few months before that hormone is out of your body and you start ovulating again. Those methods stop ovulation, whereas the long-acting reversibles don't. 
Then you have, in addition to that, your barrier methods, right? They're not as uh, efficient as the LARCs and the combined hormonal contraceptives, but they're very good if they're used appropriately. So you have condom male, condom female. You also have a diaphragm uh, that can be used in a cervical cup. So those are your options as far as barriers go. Now I didn't mention um, the, the tubal uh, or the vasectomy, but a bilateral tubal ligation uh, and a vasectomy are also very good means of contraception as well. So those are your contraceptive options. Are there any particular risk factors with certain groups, whether it be age or populations, that uh, may encounter uh, using a certain type of contraception? Great question, Curry. So when I do a contraceptive consult, I identify what diagnoses you have, what, you know, what are your risk factors, identify what is your age, uh, do you smoke, have you ever had a blood clot to your leg or your lungs, do you have uncontrolled hypertension. There are a number of different things that are risk factors that are contraindicated for certain types of contraception options. Center for Disease Control has a great app. It's called Contraception. It's free. It'll take you through what are your risk factors as an individual based on your age, your history, your diagnoses. And I use that every time I take care of a patient to make sure we recommend the safest and best options. Are there any other apps? You mentioned an app, a uh, contraception mm -hmm. app. Mm -hmm. Are there any other uh, opportunities for learning more information about the various contraception uh, that are available? So you mean specifically about brands? Or the different options, whether it be long-term, reversibles, and so forth. Okay, I hear what you're saying. So bedsider.org has a great app that has personal testimonies and interviews from all genders about specific contraceptive methods. So you've given us a lot of different choices and varieties and different actions of different versions of contraception. Is there any one particular choice that tends to be the most common? So because it is so accepted, the pill is still the number one choice. However, the IUD and the rod are in close second. So you've given us various options on how to prevent pregnancies. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about women who are attempting to begin uh, pregnancies, but have issues with infertility. Yeah, challenges with what you plan, infertility issues, uh, I do see that. And it's, it's heartbreaking, but it's also very personal. Um, you plan, and when you can't get pregnant, when you think you want to get pregnant, it's a very challenging time. It's a very uh, sad time for both members of the couple. Um, and so I try to take a lot of time to understand specifically what could be the root cause. A lot of times it's a diagnosis such as polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, PCOS, sometimes referred to as PCO, um, is a time when a woman doesn't ovulate, but she necessarily wouldn't know that. Um, so I try to identify what could be the cause. Maybe it's something with a thyroid, a hypothyroid or hyperthyroid disorder. Um, she wouldn't know that either, so we try to do some blood work. I try to do the initial workup of what could be causing the challenges with getting pregnant. 
if I'm not able to identify something that's just very obvious, then I refer to a reproductive endocrinology or infertility specialist. Um, there haven't been many patients throughout my lifetime that I've worked with that haven't been able to get pregnant. Now, they might not be able to get pregnant with their own eggs and their partner's sperm, uh, but I've had very few that have not been able to have a child or adopt. Excellent. Some great information about um, preventing pregnancies and also those uh, who are attempting to begin families who have fertility issues. Can we talk more about, let's talk about sexual health when it's related to disease process. Absolutely. Such as STIs, sexually transmitted infections or sexually transmitted diseases. Yes. I, that, this is probably 50% of my practice. Uh, women do not like discharge. And anytime the discharge changes, I encourage patients to seek an evaluation. So the Center for Disease Control still refers to sexually transmitted infections as STDs. A great app that's free from the Center for Disease Control is called STDs. Uh, and I would encourage all, all individuals to download it so you know when you should be screened and what you should be screened for. Interesting enough, uh, the vaginal infections, yeast infections, bacterial vaginosis are still included in the list of STDs, but they're not STDs, they're vaginal infections. But because the pH balance of the vagina can change during sex, that's why they're listed on that uh, format. I will tell you that this past year, uh, this past uh, guidelines that were published, the latest version from the Center for Disease Control included a new STI that we've always known existed, but we didn't know the name of it. And it's MGen, Mycoplasma Genitalia. So that may be something that you have not heard about. And I, I have a feeling many patients uh, and many women watching this and their partners may be, have never heard of MGen either. But that's something new that we, we learned this year or this, with this last guideline change. So can you tell us more about MGen and what's some of the symptoms and signs that we might see? Absolutely. So diagnosing MGen is as simple as swabbing the vagina, sending the culture off. But more importantly, because of cost, we don't usually start out by screening for MGen. We normally start out by excluding other more common sexually transmitted infections such as trichomonas, chlamydia, gonorrhea, those are the STIs we see most frequently that are associated with vaginal discharge. If those come back negative, then I start looking uh, deeper into what else it could be. That's when I would screen for MGen because MGen, it's vaginal discharge and the woman may or may not have any other symptoms. It's just a discharge that she just can't get rid of. It doesn't necessarily have a weird odor to it. Might have a little bit of a change in the color, but it's, it's annoying more than anything. So is all discharge abnormal? So with women, they don't like discharge. But discharge is normal as long as it doesn't have an odor, as long as you don't notice symptoms such as itching, bleeding, irritation, extreme dryness. If you have a normal menstrual cycle at different times during that menstrual cycle, you're gonna have more discharge. After you ovulate, you're going to have less discharge. So discharge is normal. It's the discharge that changes in the color, the amount, the odor, has symptoms associated with it that isn't normal. So you mentioned earlier about some of the different STIs. Are there treatments for the STIs? Thankfully, 
the more common STIs, we have treatments for. So trichomonas is as simple as an antibiotic. Gonorrhea, chlamydia, the same thing. Unfortunately, herpes, we don't have a cure, but we have a treatment for the symptoms like the herpetic outbreaks or the lesions. Uh, we don't, like I said, have a cure. Same thing with HIV. We don't have a cure, but we have medications that can help with some of the, the side effects and the signs and symptoms associated with HIV. Same thing with syphilis. We have a antibiotics that we can give for syphilis, uh, but you, it, can, it can reoccur with exposure again. With MGen, we thankfully have an antibiotic that can treat for it. So there's two things I want to talk about specifically is drug resistance. So we have we met in drug resistance for some of the treatments, and also one of the other uh, important uh, STIs and or STDs that we've seen is uh, HPV. So can we talk about drug resistance first? Absolutely, that's an important topic, Curry. I'm glad that you brought that up. So there are certain STIs that have always responded to certain specific antibiotics. But throughout the course of evolution, we have noticed a change with bacteria uh, in that not all antibiotics that once treated an STI do today. Now, I will say it's very rare. I would say less than 10 patients a year do I see that I have to change the antibiotic. It's very rare uh, in, the, in the common uh, group of well women. Uh, it's usually immunosuppressed or other types of uh, situations specific that we notice that, that you have to use another antibiotic. But if, if use the treatment and the symptoms do not subside, please let your healthcare product provider know because most likely you're going to need to switch the antibiotic or you need an extended amount of antibiotic. So now let's talk about HPV. HPV, very near and dear to my heart. So HPV, human papillomavirus, is a virus that is considered a sexually transmitted infection. But we know in research that young children and even nuns who have never had sex have gotten it. Hmm, how could this be? Because it's a skin-to-skin -skin transmitted infection. Sex is skin-to-skin. -skin. And we know that the HPV vaccine lives right up underneath the basal cell of the skin. Anytime there's tra trauma to the skin, there is a skin-to-skin -to -skin touch, uh, it can be transmitted. And so it's easily transmitted, so easily transmitted. That's why I tell patients all the time, condoms, 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 so important. Because HPV can be prevented with the vaccine, we know that. But there's over 100 strands of HPV. Uh, it's 16 and 18 specifically that we want to prevent, and that's what the vaccine prevents. Is there a treatment? For HPV? Yes. Unfortunately, we don't have a treatment for the human papillomavirus. The good news is if your immune system's healthy, you can pass the virus, you can clear the virus. Uh, it's, it's, it's very controversial, it's very trivial, uh, how long specifically, but thoughts and research are 12 to 24 months after you have the transmitted virus, you have the infection per se. If you have a good immune system, you should be able to clear it. So now let's talk about menopause. So when does a woman know that she's reaching the point of menopause? Is there certain signs and symptoms or changes that she will notice? So menopause. Menopause is defined as 12 months without a period. The average age in America is 52 years old. Well, what about before? Perimenopause. 
perimenopausal period can start many years before uh, menopause. When you remember, I said menopause is 12 months without a menstrual cycle. At 12 months without a menstrual cycle, you're officially diagnosed as menopausal. Uh, but the perimenopausal year, that's, those are the years when your hormones start to change, you have mood swings, you cry, you're angry, uh, you start to notice discomfort with sex, you start to notice that you may or may not have hot flashes and night sweats, uh, but you notice there, there's difference, there's changes to your hair, there's difference, there's changes to your thought processes, you just don't think as clear or as sharp as well. Uh, and then once you enter menopause, those symptoms can heighten. And like I said, it's usually at age 52 is the average. But I tell patients, get to know your family history. What did your mom, when did she go through menopause? Uh, when did she have certain signs and symptoms and diagnoses? Get to know. And if you don't know, because many women are adopted, uh, then make sure you keep that well woman exam every year so you can do preventive screening and understand what's normal and not. So are there any particular methods that can be helpful for the woman that is transitioning in, in menopause? Great question. Healthy lifestyle, so important. Maintain a healthy body weight for your height. Don't smoke. If you do drink, drink in moderation. Exercise routinely. Avoid uh, substances and uh, various items that could cause you to have uh, an, an imbalance. Uh, mental health is so important. Get adequate rest every night. Very, very important. Just take care of you. Very important that you put yourself first in your mental health and well-being first. Eat a healthy diet. Have, you know, meaningful relationships. Be honest. Communicate with yourself and with others. Are there any particular risk factors that might uh, elicit the menopause process earlier than typical? So there are certain types of, of diagnoses uh, that could lead to early menopause, uh, certain types of treatments, uh, like for breast cancer, that could as well. Uh, those are not as common, and your healthcare provider, it's essential that you communicate what's important to you um, regarding uh, menopause and life changes, so that's uh, recommendations for, for potential treatments or potential methods to help prevent whatever it is that's important to you. So we spend a lot of time talking about different topics uh, from sexual health, mental health, uh, preventative care, uh, fertility, infertility, and, and now menopause. Are there resources that our audience might have to gain more knowledge about all these processes? Yes, absolutely. There are three, three resources that are free. Uh, the first one is the Well Woman app. It's a free app. You, it, you put your age. It tells you across the lifespan based on your age what vaccinations you need, what screenings you need. Uh, also, uh, the Menopro app, M-E-N-O-P-R-O, -O, Menopro, like menopause, is a free app that will help women with menopause. The Her Hub, H-E-R, Her Hub, you can Google that, is a free resource with any diagnosis, whether it be polycystic ovarian syndrome, infertility, uh, menstrual disorders, contraception, the first pap, uh, anything with sexual health, across the lifespan issues is a great uh, online resource, takes you through, it explains evidence-based uh, 
research, treatment options, et cetera. So that's another one. Uh, in addition, the Center for Disease Control has some free apps focused on STDs is one, and then another one called contraception. Excellent. You've provided us some great information, a lot of uh, great um, resources to our audience today related to women's health, and we appreciate your time. Any, in our last few minutes, is there any other final takeaways that you want for our audience? Two things I would leave you with. Have your Women's Well Woman exam every single year. If you have insurance, it covers that, that visit. So go get that exam. I'll never forget, um, I missed two years of exams and I had an abnormal pap and a goiter and I never noticed the goiter So because they're very subtle. And so, oh my goodness, and I'm a healthcare provider, I'm a nurse. So very important you have your well woman exam every year. If you are not 45 yet, get vaccinated for HPV, it's safe. We have criteria that we identify who can and can't have it, and why not prevent cancer? Oh my goodness, male, female, doesn't matter. If you're 45 or younger, get started today. Thank you so much, and uh, as you said earlier, prevention, prevention, prevention. Absolutely. So very important. Absolutely. So thank you for your time, thank you for your knowledge. Thank we really you. appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.